Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silken in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. I usually have to ask you at this point, Frank, how are you doing? But but you've just been doing lots of traveling and other things. So how are you doing? <laughs> uh, thank you for your, your kind tone of concern, David. I'm doing fine. I'm just back from the U.S. I, I went to an excellent conference last weekend. Unfortunately, I, mean, I suppose I shouldn't divulge uh, personal information uh, in public like this, especially given this podcast, especially, Frank, so it's fine. <laughs> especially given the topic of, of today's uh, of this week's uh, episode. But uh, I, I caught COVID while I was uh, while I was traveling, David. So I, I arrived home not feeling very well. Um, somebody who was at the conference I was at sent an email out saying, "Oh, by the way, I tested positive. I took a test and I, I've tested positive now." So I'm. Uh, I'm not, it's still not great. I got to say that. I mean, I'm obviously heavily vaxxed and I've had, I had it once before, but uh, this is my second go around with the, with the old Rona and um, I'm not feeling great, but I'm, and, and, and listeners who are concerned, even though Frank and I are about a quarter of a mile from each other, uh, we are doing this on zoom, not in person. So I yeah, am that's safe right. from uh, Frank's uh, contagion. Um Right, sure, David. So, make it all about you. Yeah, well, I'm I'm concerned for our <laughs> listeners who are concerned about me. I understand. I understand. Right. Anyway, uh, so uh, artificial intelligence right now is either the great promise for civilization and the future as we know it, or the greatest threat to democracy and higher education and twelve others and the economy and twelve other things. So we're going to talk about the history of AI uh, and and the state and future maybe of AI to the extent that we can talk about any of those things. Yeah, and, and I will admit that because I both have COVID and I'm an 18th century historian, I'm bringing very little to the table here uh, when it comes to AI. I've read a lot about AI recently in anticipation of this article and just because I'm interested in it, but I'm minded um, how, how little I know in terms of uh, background. Now, having said that, the 18th century was the at one level, the age of reason, it's, it's when people are seeking to um, ap apply um, knowledge to improve humanity. A lot of the kind of mm. principles that underline AI were, were, were laid down or at least are claimed by uh, intellectuals for in the 18th century. I mean, I, I, I have thought as I prepare to undertake this role at Monticello, uh, I need to prepare for the inevitable question, you know, what would Thomas Jefferson have thought about AI? Well, uh, I, I think actually there is an answer to that. Or at least okay. what uh, Jefferson's contemporaries thought of AI. Do you know about the Mechanical Turk? I don't know about the Mechanical Turk. Okay. So tell us so about the this, Mechanical this, Turk. This was a uh, device that was built in the uh, seven in 1770. Um, it was built in in Vienna, uh, but then it tours around the world, uh, including to the United States, for over the next uh, 84 years, and it was a advertised as a chess plane robot they didn't use the word robot because they didn't have the word robot uh, this chess plane automatons is the way they would have described it and it was a large box and uh with a chessboard on the top and a uh, sort of a mannequin uh with two arms a, a chest a torso and a head and a turban uh it was dressed as a person from the ottoman empire or something uh, so that's why it's called the mechanical turk and it would play chess. And it, they would take around on tour and, and they would open it up and they could see all the gears inside and whatnot. And they open up the front and the back and you could see through it and, and, and all the uh, works that supposedly helped this machine play chess. And it was a fabulous novelty. Napoleon played against it. 
Ben Franklin, when he was in Europe, saw it and was amazed by it. Um, he comes to the United States in, in the 1820s. It tours around uh, the East Coast, goes to New York City and Philadelphia and Boston and Baltimore. Uh, Charles Carroll, the signer of the Declaration of Independence, he, he plays it and he beats it. Um, Edgar Allan Poe saw it uh, when it visits Richmond and writes a very famous essay about the Mechanical Turk. Um, Spoiler alert, there wasn't a machine that played chess. It was a guy that they, or a series of guys, they hid inside the mechanism who actually played the chess for the robot. But this idea that you could have a machine that could play chess was uh, actively debated. People really, some people really bought in, many people for 84 years, bought into this idea that they could create a machine that could do this, they thought, very human activity or, or very you know intellectually sophisticated activity of playing chess, one that required you to match minds with other chess players. So how long did it I mean surely the secret that you know the fact that there were there were people inside this thing playing chess must have come out pretty early. I mean there surprisingly not right um oh, i think there were people I don't they, believe it. well there were people who were saying like look uh, you know there was no there were rumors but there was no evidence because the guys who were displaying it would open it up and and show you look there's nobody in there here's all the, the you know you can see all these wires and gears and things um and then they closed the box up and the thing would start to play chess um so was it a grift, though? Were they making money off this? Oh, to be sure they're making money. Right. And I think originally it was made as something to impress the, you know, court in Vienna. But I think, you know, once it goes on tour, it's a money-making enterprise. This is, uh, you know, sort of a, uh, you know, the, the, you know when it, by the time you get to the 19th century, when Poe is seeing this and, and whatnot, you know, this is the great age of, of deception and fraudsters and those kinds of, of right confidence men. It, it, well, it's, well, but you know, you are paying to see an extraordinary thing, and you are seeing an extraordinary thing. You're also seeing basically a chess match with one guy hidden inside a box. Um, but this question of like, can a machine think, and can a machine think like a man does, was 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 this was a question that people were. That this machine was causing people to actually debate, um, and so obviously this is a, a um, falsehood in terms of it wasn't actually machine thinking. But the question of of whether machine could think and whether chess was the right mechanism to see whether a machine could think uh, that actually, if you look at the history of AI, becomes up over. over. Yeah, I mean that's right. But I, I, to, to return to the century of its origin, I mean the 18th century is a, is a century when there's a great deal of technological innovation and there's a desire to apply, to use technology essentially for what we would call the creation of labor-saving devices, right? Mm. Oh, that's what the cotton gin is. Sure. Um, sure. Uh, well, and, and the idea behind the Turk, you know, as an automaton, there was a whole fad of automatons of machines that look like men doing things, right? And there's, you know, if you think about various kinds of mechanical clocks that they have doing things, they, they thought that was fascinating. Um, so, so it's in that sort of vein. So David, I want to begin with an anecdote. Okay. Which is I was recently um, in Sweden. I was attending my godson's graduation from gymnasium, which is secondary school. Uh, and I was talking to his grandfather, 
And his grandfather is a very interesting kind of thoughtful 90-year-old who lives by himself and kind of off in the country, but has given a lot of thought to a lot of things. Really fascinating man. And we were standing, uh, well, he was sitting. I was I was standing with him while we were waiting for a lift because um, he's quite old. And he said to me, he said, well, and this, it was like something from a Bergman film. He said, well, we only get a short time in this world where our time upon the stage is very, very brief. Pause. Maybe AI, maybe artificial intelligence will extend that, though, because it will extend our consciousness. Pause. Unless it kills us all. <laughs> and I thought that's it right there, right? I mean, this is this is both the the he he summed up both the kind of promise of AI uh, that it, it could ultimately transform our consciousness and prolong life to some extent. Uh, however, mm. we're gonna it may redefine what we mean by life. Yet there's that excess. There is at least a fear and a belief that it may pose an existential threat to us. Uh, so sure. I think it's unlike other technologies, except probably the development of the atomic bomb in the middle of the 20th century, as far as being a new technology that, you know, represents a, 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 a existential threat to humanity. Well, and it's intriguing that we've been having a debate about the merits of AI and whether it's going to lead to Skynet and kill us um, or lead to Lieutenant Commander Data and be our best friend, um, you know, for for 50 years, right? That that the debates about the merits of technology have gone well in advance of the technology itself. Um, which in that sense makes it different than, than the atomic bomb, where you know, there weren't those debates happening prior, you know, that much prior to its actual usage. Uh, only only the people involved in developing it. Right, yes. But there wasn't sort of the popular culture and, and fear um, in the same way. That's right. I mean, the fear of the bomb developed after the bomb was was developed and used. Um, so, uh, what do you think the definition of AI is? Because I think oh, there's gosh. lots of that because it gets used for lots of different things. What 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 definition? Do we have a definition of what this is? I'm sure there is one. Because uh, I was, because uh, I was talking to a uh, to, to some nice computer scientists in our fine university, which has a, a program in AI about what what actually it is, and the answer they gave was AI is always what computers will be able to do in five years. Huh. You know, and the idea of AI when it sort of develops in in the 1950s and, and early 1960s. You know, they're like, if we can get a computer to play chess, that'll be artificial intelligence. And now we have computers to play chess and we're like, yeah, well, that's that's intriguing. The next thing is getting it to write a novel or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and so it, it, I think it's kind of a moving target about what AI is and what we find persuasive about it. So it's, a, you know, just like intelligence itself, I guess, figuring out how to define intelligence is, is challenging. Um, so defining artificial intelligence, I think, is equally kind of challenging. 
Right. Well, actually, I mean, I think that's I mean, that's obviously a sort of tongue in cheek response, but it's not untrue uh, to some extent. I mean, I get I guess. And again, I'm not a specialist in this area, but I, if I were going to kind of try to come up with it with a working definition, I would imagine. Self-replicating. Mm. Um, it's very hard to define a thing without using the using the term in the in the definition. I, I was going to say self-replicating artificial intelligence. That's that's not really a definition. I would say mm. um, machine learning that is self-replicating um, would be. I, I, I think I think self-replication is a key element of this. Okay, um, and I think machine. Um, uh, Again, I'm not using the right terms here because I, I lack the expertise. Almost an algorithm. So, so, so I remember talking to one of our, our computer scientists about mm. 20 years ago who said to me, it was sadly now deceased, said to me, you know, the most important development in the history of computer science to that point, which was about the year 2001, 2002, uh, was the algorithm that said people who like this also like that. That's what made commerce on the internet possible. That's what made Amazon possible. So I think an algorithm that can learn is, I think that's artificial intelligence and, and, and that can that can replicate what it's doing, but also develop what it's doing without human intervention. Is that fair? Uh, I think that's a definition that works. And I, and, and I think the, uh, you know, Intriguing part of it, you know, is that that you know, what we're considering AI now is is different than what they considered AI in the past. Um, you know, as a field, I think people sort of point to the 1950s as sort of the origin point for this. Um, you know, that's when you have Alan Turing sort of developed the Turing test, and you first have people trying to program uh, versions of, of, of machines that can actually actually play chess and checkers, not necessarily well, but but doing that. Um, and there was a period in which there was, you know, uh, there was a great famous conference at at Dartmouth in 1956, where people actually sort of started to develop with the basic principles of, of of what artificial intelligence is as an academic discipline. But they're doing it sort of well in advance of actually having the the hardware to do it and the software to do it. But they're very optimistic about you know the future of the discipline and how quickly uh, things are going to be developed. Um, you know, and uh, you know, there there was an AI pioneer guy by the name of Herbert Sloan, uh, 1965, who, who thought that in 20 years uh, they would have technology that can do all the work that men can do, both physical work and mental work. And obviously, he was wrong about the date, um, but I think there was a real optimism uh, then about about what technology could do. Um, you know, and that's really, I think, also when you start to see sort of this bifurcation in the in the you know in the mid '60s about about what AI is going to look like and whether it's good for us or not, because you know in the late '60s you've got both uh, 2001 and Space Odyssey being written, both the book and the and the movie, but you also have things like Lost in Space where you have a helpful little robot that will take care of you and and do all the work, you know, and and. You know, be your best friend or the Jetsons or any of these other kinds of, of helpful uh, AI machines. Um, and so I think you start to see that they both the discipline and the debate about it growing up in tandem. Um, you also have in the 1960s, the first chat bot. Uh, do you know about Eliza? No, I do not. No, okay, Eliza was amazing. Uh, it was made at MIT in, in mid 1960s by uh, 
tech guy named Joseph uh, Weizenbaum, um, and he does uh, basically an early version of of early uh, sort of natural language processing, what we would call a chatbot, uh, and it was designed to be a uh, psychotherapist. Right. And what it could do is it could process at least enough of your language and put out responses. And so you would say, Eliza, I'm feeling sad today. And it would say, why are you feeling sad today? And you'd say, I'm feeling sad today because I lost my job. How does losing your job make you feel, right? And then it would sort of do that kind of psychotherapy, able to process enough of the language to respond uh, in a moderately intelligent way. And the intriguing thing about Eliza was how emotionally attached people got to it. You know, that wise mom said like, look, this is just computer program. It just, you know, has abilities to sort of parse language and, and spit out responses. But, you know, at one point his secretary said, you know, Dr. Wise mom, can you leave the room? I want to have a conversation with a, a private conversation with Eliza, you know, and, and, and when he turned it off, people were angry at him that, uh, that, you know, they couldn't access this, you know, fairly rudimentary, at least by our perspective, you know, chatbot, but, you know, that kind of emotional place that it was filling, um, you know, Weizenbaum found that intriguing and, and somewhat disturbing, you know, that, that it's going to fill some kind of role that an actual human should be playing in, in someone's life, that Eliza can't actually provide meaningful psychotherapy, even if that's what it was programmed to do. That's interesting. Of course, Eliza's successors, arguably, are the voices in our phones and smart speakers, you know, Alexa and Siri and so on. Sure. And people don't seem to have formed those kinds of bonds with with um, Alexa and Siri, at least to my knowledge. If anything, they resent them or they're worried about them eavesdropping on them and gathering data, which it seems to be a legitimate worry. Case, yes. Um, but it's and, also and intriguing I, that, that all of these chatbots have women's names. Sure, but you. <laughs> sure, um, yeah, of course it is. But uh, but of course you can change the name of your Alexa or a series if you want to. Um, to be sure, uh, but, sort of the but, default gender. To, it's uh, that's fascinating to me. But anyway. um, but you know, so, so that hasn't continued in the same way. So so we we've been living with these in our phones and in our smart speakers mm. for a while now, and um, they don't seem. Well, they're useful and people use them. And again, they're hoovering up data, which is the real uh, a big concern about AI as far as I'm concerned. Um, we don't seem to have bonded with them in the same way. I don't think people, I mean, am I wrong about that? Well, um, I think people have bonded with their phones. Sure, but I'm talking about the, 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 the actual AI. Yeah, at least not yet. Although there was a movie that came out a few years ago, I think called Her, that, that sort of postulated that idea uh, in an interesting way. Uh, sure, but that was a movie. I'm talking about we've got millions act, yeah, of these you, that you, in people's yeah. pockets, and uh, it, it doesn't seem to have happened that way yet. Yeah, to be sure. Um, yeah, which is intriguing that it did happen you know, 60 years ago uh, with a much more rudimentary kind of program. Um, one of the interesting things about the history of AI, it's looking back at, at it uh, now is that there are long periods of time actually where, where the development of AI sort of stops. And part of this has to do with funding, right? So that, that, that there's a great enthusiasm for AI in the, in, the, in the 60s. There's a period in sort of the second half of the 70s where interest in AI basically dropped off the radar. 
partially because of mostly because of funding, but also because the technology hadn't quite caught up with uh, the ideas that that uh, you know AI scientists were having. There's others or periods more recently of, of what they call AI winters in which there's very little development. So it's not been a technology where there's been sort of steady progress and it. it's been something that very much has been uh, fits and starts. Um, you know, then it's for the next big break group through, I think is probably Deep Blue. Do you remember Deep Blue? I remember Deep Blue played chess, right? Yes. Uh, and, and in the mid to late 90s, played a series of, of chess matches with the uh, Russian uh, chess uh, grandmaster, uh, Gary Kasparov. Uh, Deep Blue lost the first series, but then after some upgrades, won the second series. Um, you know, in chess, going all the way back to the Mechanical Turk was sort of seen as being the, you know, the great test of intelligence because it does require you to think multiple steps ahead and all these other kinds of things. And, and it was always believed that, that you know, that would be one demonstration that that you know kind of an artificial intelligence had existed. Um, the intriguing thing I think to me about that is about how you know when we talk about AI, whether we're talking about AI that's good at very specific tasks or AI that's very generalizable, right? And and Deep Blue is really good at playing chess now. I'm sure we'd both lose very very badly. But uh, but if we asked it to you know do some other kind of task that requires intelligence. It's not very good at those things. You know, it's about how sort of generalizable the AI is. And I think that's the thing that's intriguing about some of the more recent things is that they are better at a greater variety of tasks uh, than some of these earlier examples. Um, yeah, I mean, so it, it seems inevitable that we're gonna get one that can drive a car and play chess. Right. Yes. I mean, that, simultaneous. That, simultaneous. Right. Yeah. We'll be sitting in the car, losing to the machine uh, at chess while it takes us to uh, therapy or <laughs> does therapy yes, because... for us. We're going through therapy about why we're losing, why we've lost our job. Because we've lost all our autonomy. Right. Exactly. Um... Right. We're just like in uh, Wally or something. Uh, I guess the next sort of big uh, splash AI would be uh, Watson, uh, which won at Jeopardy in 2011. Um, you know, and I think that sort of demonstrates sort of a new sort of level of lateral thinking and, and, and um, autonomy, being able to play Jeopardy, which again is a very sort of specialized skill set, but is much more diverse uh, and wide ranging than say uh, playing chess is. I would think playing chess is actually more difficult than winning it. I mean, because Jeopardy, if, if 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 the AI is programmed to just know lots of information, yes. I mean, Jeopardy is basically jumped up trivia, right? It's a trivia contest. Um, but, so, so, so you have to understand what the question is, or I have to understand what the answer is, and then frame. You know, you, you have to. There's a language parsing element to it, which comes very easily to humans, but is very difficult for machines. Sure, but if there's one thing we've learned, it's that, and indeed, this is the the, the kind of um, real existential crisis AI is causing in our neck of the woods. Um, AI can learn language and can, and can yes. adapt. You know, so this is the danger about, or as we perceive it, of um, AI writing student essays, for example, which seems inevitable, right? Um, well, it's already happening. So actually, uh, you probably weren't able to come to the, There was a department meeting, I think, while you were traveling about things like chat GPT and these other kinds of technologies that can write student essays. And I don't want to be sort of pessimistic about it, but the, uh, the take-home message was like, these technologies are here. There's not much we can do about them. They're 
very hard to police, um, you know, and, uh, you know, there's a very sort of our, our capacity as a, as a discipline to respond to this is, you know, banning it doesn't work, you know, so. We're going to be back to the future. We're going to be back to the way we, you know, when I, when I got to Edinburgh in the late nineties, students took three hour exams that they hand wrote. Yeah. And, and that was the main form of assessment. And I think there'll be some combination of oral exams plus sitting down and doing written exams again. That that that's going to be the answer. I think that's the that that is the only answer, frankly. Well, I mean, I think that's the only answer if what you want to do is have them not use this technology at all. And you know, I, I'm I think we will have a return to 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 at least in the short term especially to in-person exams and writing it by hand and which i'm not looking forward to because students handwriting isn't great because they don't they weren't them. taught they weren't taught to write <clears throat> and they don't have practice in doing it but um you know the the how do you assign essays in class i think that's still an important skill and and i think what's going to happen no is, it's not <laughs> what being able to write an essay it's a skill we fetishize in a world of AI. Is it really that important a skill? Well, I think what's going to happen is, is, is you know, we're, we're going to have some students who are going to have, have the AI write the essay and then turn that in. But I think you're also going to have students who are going to have AIs help them in the writing process, which is, a, a, I think, a, a different mechanism. I think, it, you know, I think we're going to sort of respond to AI, you know, People panicked when when personal computers came in and spell check came in, you know. Clippy, clippy, the little, the yeah, little so, paper yeah. clip. <laughs> but, you know, people worried like, oh, spell check, people won't learn how to spell. Well, it's like, first off, spelling isn't all that important, ultimately. Uh, and and you know, people do learn how to spell, uh, even if the spell check, maybe not as well, but it doesn't really <laughs> do matter. They? because. Do they really? <laughs> well, I mean, we know that there are letters and they go in a certain sequence and, you know, you, you know you'll, you'll figure it out. Um, but uh, you know, as a skill, that's not really all that necessary. Um, much in the same way as doing certain kinds of long division in your head is not important anymore because everyone has a phone with them all the time. Um, you know, and so I think it's gonna end up being a, a tool, one of a series of tools and it's a, and it's a rapidly evolving tool. I think that's you know, the big concern uh, President Biden met with a bunch of AI people last week, and Congress has had a series of hearings with with various AI people about the future of this. And part of it is what the responses of various governments is going to be very challenging because what they're regulating is going to be very different by the time the regulations come into place than it is now. That uh, the technology is changing at an order of magnitude that that greatly outpaces the ability of governments or regulatory bodies to deal with them. Not least because one only has to think about some of the hearings when, when tech people have been brought before Congress and the fact that the, you know, the senators who are, who are doing the, uh, you know, asking the questions don't know what they're talking about. You know, they, no. this, they're the wrong demographic, frankly, to really understand this. Fra we're the wrong demographic almost well, to, to ask these questions. Um, so I think there's that. There's also the fact that whether government oversight will work, especially because this technology is advancing around the globe mm. and some governments are pursuing it. Um, well, all, go all governments are pursuing it. 
and they'll all do it to protect and promote their own interests and ends. But but of course, this can be weaponized, as we know. And so it's, it's going to be very, very difficult to, to, to regulate this, it seems to me. No, I, I think that's right. Um, but I think there's all these governments are talking about it. But the fear is if, I guess, you put some dampers on it that other countries won't, and then they'll have better toys than, than we do. That's right. Um, what, what effect do you think it's going to have on the labor market? I think one fear that people have of, of AIs is that this is going to take everyone's jobs um, and, 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 and leave us all dislocated by the technological change. Is that something that we should be afraid of? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. I mean, I mean, and technology has been disrupting the labor market, uh, well, forever, but certainly- yeah, Since the wheel. Um, that's been a that's a characteristic of the of the um, industrial revolution. You know, cobblers were put out of work by factory made shoes. And, and and to some extent, now they're coming for us, David, because it's the people in the knowledge economy who thought they were protected who aren't so safe. So so mm-hmm. but, but so I think it will be disruptive. Having said that, there's still stuff that people need to do. Uh, you know, our economy. Uh, large, seems largely in many parts of the world and certainly in the developed world to be based on selling each other coffee. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and I guess that will still happen and people still need to grow coffee and ship coffee and do all those things. Um, so so I, I don't think human labor will disappear. I read a really interesting and, and frankly um, sad article yesterday in preparation for this from New York Magazine about the human labor that under pins AI. Hmm. So data entry um, and, and the, the unbelievably tedious work that's being carried out by thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of workers, probably hundreds of thousands of workers, often in developing countries, often for very poor wages, just doing coding, looking at video and coding. Hmm. Uh, because AI is about uh, you know accumulating and aggregating data uh and that that data a lot of that data still needs to be entered and, and the uh, one of the um examples in that article that really struck with me stuck with me rather is that um do you remember when google was first or i think it was google was experimenting with self-driving cars mm-hmm. and somebody was killed it may not have been Google, so I shouldn't name Google because there, there, there have been a variety of self-driving yeah. car companies that have killed people with their self-driving right. cars. But but and the reason was the poor unfortunate woman who was hit by the self-driving car was hit by a self-driving car because she was walking her bike. And so although the the self-driving car, the AI had been trained not to hit cyclists and not to hit pedestrians, it didn't recognize what a person walking a bike Hmm. was and that was because nobody had entered that yet now they will eventually i'm sure they probably already have but the point being the point of this this essay being there's still a huge amount of kind of very low-paid human labor that that sustains ai let alone Hmm. the kind of human labor that goes into sustaining you know I, i wasn't being entirely facetious about coffee you know our service economy and the fact that that people still require uh i i guess AIs could be trained to make coffee for you. Can do, oh, can to do be sure. the, yes. and do the little uh, design in your in your foam. Uh, but whether it's worth probably it, better whether, than we can. Yeah. But whether it's worth it, it, you know, is is debatable. So I don't think. Yeah, I mean, we always have Jean Luc Picard saying, you know, Earl Grey hot, and it comes out of the replicator. But I don't think we're we're quite there yet. Um, so so I don't think. I think it's. 
a disruptive force in the labor market. I, mm -hmm. I think its implications are probably, um, or the dangers of it are more kind of, are grander than that. I think there's always been disruption in the labor market and um, people adapt and, and will continue to adapt because the, they will have no choice. Uh, and I should say, we will have no choice. I mean, this, yes. is, this, is, this is coming for us too, David. Um, no, to be sure. But I think that AI's bigger promise and bigger threat is at a kind of macro level, unsurprisingly, because that's what it's all about, right? So in terms of medical advances and being able to process information uh, much more quickly than humans can, AI has great promise you can see in, in the treatment of cancer, for example. Hmm. On the other hand, I read an article in preparation for this um, in the Atlantic, and the headline was, don't give AI the nuclear codes. And the, the, the reason for this was, it, it talked about a they war They saw game. Terminator and then decided, no, that's a bad idea. Well, the, you know, they talked about a war gaming scenario that, that, that was done in some think tank. And they brought in people who, you know, kind of retired generals and heads of state and diplomats, people who deal with international crises. And one of the options available to them as, as the war game played out was bringing in AI uh, mm -hmm. to make decisions. And the scary um, uh, conclusion was these people the, who were you know, quite sophisticated in this area of, of thinking and thinking about human conflict and how it, how it develops, almost always opted for that because it became the thing you needed to speed things up in order to make decisions more quickly than your adversaries. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the, the concern uh, of the, the author of this article, and I wish I could remember their name now, um, was basically, you know, in almost every scenario, that, that seemed to be the right option. But then once you take command and control of nuclear weapons out of human hands, the, the potential for mistakes, well, the apostles of AI would say the potential for mistakes goes down. Uh, the the uh, critics of AI would say, no, 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 it, it rises because AI might make decisions that's good for AI, make mm. the correct decision, which is not necessarily good for humanity. And that's an apocalyptic version, but, mm, but yeah. you know, but that's yeah. The, the paradox you we run into militarily is is you're, if you're fighting an enemy that is using AI for lots of things, you need AI to have the response time to be able to deal with that and. Then that that leads to dark places. That's right. I mean, the the the, uh, the thrust of this article, one of the points it made was: look, in the beginning of the nuclear age, leaders had mm. hours to make decisions. Then it was down to an hour when it might have been ICBMs mm. or or you know, and now it's minutes. And but as that time, as that window for making decisions decisions shrinks mm -hmm. because of technology. And it is shrinking. AI becomes essential to making those decisions. It's the only way to do it. And then we've got basically deep blue playing chess with Eliza or whatever, yeah. right? <laughs> the, 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 the challenging bit, or one of the things that's challenging, I think, for a lot of people now about the AI that we have today versus the AI that we had a generation ago, is that we don't, even the people who are building some of the AIs today, don't know exactly how it works that the the mechanisms that the machine uses to to make the decisions it does and the sort of the interior logic of ai is not the same as it was with with deep blue 
mean, so Deep Blue, the programmers could say, look, what we do is we teach it the rules of chess and we teach it to calculate all the possible outcomes of different moves people make and then, you know, make the decisions that sort of reach a certain kind of, of algorithmic logic to them. Now, when you're having an AI, you know, how does an AI produce the particular outputs it does today? The, the, the way that machine lear learning works uh, and the way that these large language models work, um, the, the interior of what the machine is doing and how it's reached the conclusions it's reaching, um, the people who are doing the program, you actually don't know. Um, I mean, a, a good example of this, uh, I heard one person discuss, is one of the big challenges for AI over the past 30 years is to get machines to be able to distinguish pictures of cats and dogs, right? Both cats and dogs have fur and four legs and a tail, but they come in a variety of different shapes and sizes. But any human child can say that's a cat and that's a dog. How do you teach a computer to do that? The way they did it was by feeding in millions and millions of pictures and say, these are all cats, these are all dogs. And now the machine can do it. But exactly how the machine does it now is, is uh, as much of a mystery to the programmers as it is to me. It's a process of, of it looking at those you know, the characteristics of those pictures and then making conclusions. Um, and I think that's troubling because we don't know what the outcome is going to be. It's not the, you know, put something in the machine and know how it, you know, the, the, the gears work and then what spits out. What it spits out may be unexpected. Yeah, and that suggests, so a major theme, uh, you're right. We've been thinking about AI for a long time in the popular culture and in the culture and in, in kind of um, in philosophy as well hmm. for decades. But will the time come when AI possesses consciousness hmm. and uh, how and if we can't define AI how do you define consciousness so that we'll, we'll set that aside for the moment hmm. uh, but therefore rights mm -hmm. and and will we be redefining rights in the coming decades um to apply to machines wow that's a huge question that's probably way beyond our pay grade um but uh I think yeah I think you're right that there's there there's these questions of, of what is as these machines get better, you know what, what what obligations do we have towards them besides what obligations they have? Now, I read I read um, uh, again one of the essays I read in preparation for this uh, had a, had a quote from a computer scientist, which I think uh, people might want to consider. This computer okay. scientist has developed a code word that she shares with her parents, so that. When and if they receive a phone call that might be from her, um, seeking to scam her parents out of all their savings, you yeah. know, mom, I'm in trouble. Can you please send money? Uh, they will know it's not her. Yeah. Um, and, and I thought, well, that's an interesting safeguard. And she, this is, a, I think, a fairly well-known computer scientist who has lots of publicly available lectures on the internet. I mean, somebody, were they so minded, or an AI were it so minded, and I realize I'm ascribing intent there, mm. could listen to all of our podcasts and come up with a pretty reasonable facsimile of how you and I sound. Um, and oh, presumably- Dear listeners, actually, that's what we're doing right now. None of this is us. <laughs> this is entirely being done by, actually, others, I've heard some other podcasts that have done that, where they've 
clone the voices of the host, had the script being written by an AI, you know, and, and it's remarkably easy to do. Um, right. That, that being said, so therefore, one of the real challenges we're going to face, it seems to me, and this is where we're going to get more deep fakes when, when in, in, in politics, we're not going to know what we can believe unless we're very, very careful. So, um, you know, that, that computer scientist developing a code word for her parents, I think, is a pretty smart idea, frankly. So everybody might want to do that. But, but you yeah, can't so tell people what your code word is. Which is. Well, then that, except for the people you want to know who your code word is. Okay. Um, you know, you mentioned politics. This is undoubtedly going to have an influence on the upcoming election like everything else is. Um, are you worried that, that that AI or deep fakes or things are going to actually have a, a influence on on the outcome of of twenty twenty four? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I think we've already seen how the manipulation of opinion and the manipulation of social media. I mean, I think social media plays a really key role in all this, and we now know that algorithms drive social media in showing people what they want on in. Facebook and Twitter and so on. Uh, so I think we've already seen it to some degree, and it will become increasingly more sophisticated. Um, we as a species seem to become increasingly less sophisticated when it comes to detecting these things. But uh, I mean, that's a that's a cynical view. Mm. Uh, you know, young people are perhaps better placed to 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 you know that the, the, they are digital natives. They are. Um, they're better placed perhaps than we are to kind of anticipate these things and to, and to hear and, and uh, read and listen more critically than we are. I mean, maybe we get taken in more mm. easily than they do, but as the AI becomes increasingly sophisticated, it, it could account for that. Well, and I guess the, we also run into the opposite problem that we disbelieve things that are true because we think they might be fake. Right. That's right. That's right. And that's the whole point. Right. I mean, it, it's it's adding this element of doubt into everything that that's the that's the really disruptive aspect of this. Well, which is, you know, uh, one of the one of the ways in which AI came, AI came up in the news earlier this week. There's a new uh, Disney Plus show. It's about. It's a, one of the Marvel ones, um, but it's about do you trust what, what you see or not? And that's sort of the philosophical premise behind the show. But there was some outrage because the opening credits um were entirely done by ai and uh you know the the artwork that they use usually that you know they hire 30 people to do it and they hired three people and a computer to to make the opening credits people were uh, upset about the way in which, which jobs were being lost ostensibly uh at, from artists and creative types to to a few people in a computer that being said the credits look good and uh you know it's hard to know what, what the future and all of that. Well, and I mean, CGI, for example, transformed filmmaking. Yeah. Uh, more worrying from my perspective when it comes to popular entertainment is basically we've got the algorithm that gives us, okay, if you like this, you'll like that. And that's why we're going to be on the 795th Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. Um, you know, I liked it in the beginning, but now I'm just thinking, Jesus, more superhero movies. That's all we get now. Um, and that's, not good. I mean, it's stifling creativity and 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 what we're able to see. And and basically, movies suck now because of algorithms. 
I like the Marvel stuff, so I'm not. I'm not I'm yeah, not but David, but, even, yeah. even you have to think there's too much. Um, I, I'm I'm more nerdy than you are in that respect. I, no, once I, you walk away from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, food tastes better, colors look great. <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, I just, I don't care. I don't want to keep up. There's so much of it, and and, and essentially that's that's the that's the you know people who like this also like that algorithm to be sure, um, right. giving us more of the same. Well, I think Hollywood's always worked in that respect. That's why you had, you know, Hollywood popping out, you know, two Westerns a week. Back sure. In the 60s, so take, take it for what you will. Right. Well, we will see whether this podcast is replaced by a series of machines in the near future. That's, <laughs> uh, you know, entirely likely. It may even be better. Hard to say. Because um, they're probably smarter than we are. Uh, time, time for last drops, Frank. What you got? Yeah, I will. Sorry, sorry, before I get to that, David, I would say if like... Uh, this week when I've got COVID, if I could have just said, hey, AI, do the podcast with David for me for this week. I'll be back next week. There is an appeal to that. Uh, yeah, last drop. I want to um, uh, recommend the latest uh, series of Slow Burn, the podcast, which we've talked about many times in the past. It's up to its eighth series. Uh, and, and the eighth series concerns, uh, four episodes, concerns uh, the life and times of Clarence Thomas. And it's At least really, through his confirmation. Yes, yeah. And it's really, really excellent. Uh, and it's great. And it's a great sort of example of uh, podcasting and journalism as history because you know, Thomas has led a very, very interesting life. And, and, yeah. and they do some, I mean, it, it's to some extent traditional journalism um you know they're going and interviewing thomas's mother for example and she's lovely um but uh, yeah the, the the recent um series of slow burn uh, concentrating on, on clarence thomas is highly to be recommended or to be oh, highly recommended yeah no it's it is really excellent i highly yep. recommend that as well what about you david uh, i want to recommend uh the diplomat uh which oh uh, yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, which is a, a streaming series with with carrie russell uh from the americans uh the premise of the show is that a a uh, lifelong uh, State Department employee gets gets appointed to be the uh, ambassador to Great Britain, um, which is not usually what uh, how that position gets filled. But there's all kinds of spycraft involved and 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 machinations behind the scenes. It's very well done. It's you know a very binge worthy kind of, of thing. That'd be good for you in your convalescence, Frank, or something to to, <laughs> to distract yourself from not feeling well. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, as a show about Americans in Britain and, and, and politics and all the kinds of things, it's, it's definitely worth watching and has some interesting commentary on, on contemporary politics in both Britain and in the, and in the U S there are some slightly veiled, but not particularly veiled references to, to, uh, contemporary and near contemporary political figures. So excellent. I want to recommend that. All right, Frank, hope you feel better. Till next Thanks, week. Thanks, David. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.